kids, what's going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 272, and yes, you're not listening to this fast, I'm just talking fast because I'm excited today because of Kraken won last night against the Dallas Stars and it was awesome, yes. Take a breath. Yeah, that was that was just regular Matt speed, right? So no, that wasn't. And your your podcast wasn't on double speed. I was just goofing around because I can, and I felt like it, and I did. All right. So clearly, you can tell I'm energized today. Yes, last night was the second round of the playoffs for the Stanley Cup uh, against the odds. Again, the Kraken. They go into Dallas, beat Dallas on the road in their space. Feels so good. Overtime win. Super crazy. That game like started out looking strong for us, and then man, we started looking week and they were looking strong and I didn't think it was going to go the way it did and then it did and it was amazing it was just a blast so and I got to watch it with my wife last night because she wasn't on shift at the hospital so all the more that was pretty fun too so anyway I am not here to talk about that if I was here to talk about hockey it would make this podcast easy all right instead for episode 272, I'm going down a rabbit hole, if you will. It's a rabbit hole of personal interest to me. I'm sharing a theology that I have believed for a very long time. I throw it around every once in a while, and people look at me like I'm crazy. That's not a surprise, right? Like, the idea of, like, is Matt stable always? That's not a big question mark. I think most people know, like, he's sincere. He tries his best. He tries to be thoughtful and smart, but eh, we don't know if he's always uh, stable, necessarily. Um, But anyway, I thought, man, I'm going to do this today in part kind of educationally, in part to maybe give a sense of what motivates my understanding of the gospel And even clear up a little bit of confusion since there's variation of this belief system out there. And especially any of us that, you know, are of, I don't know, 100 years and below, uh, this theological system, uh, people kind of look at a little sideways because it's by far not the most popular now. It was popular back in the day, like our founding fathers of the United States, a lot of them, if they would have been Christian, probably would have leaned toward this kind of theology, which is what motivated much of their ideas when it came to kind of the future of the country and everything else. I'll get into that maybe just a hair, but you'll understand when I kind of talk about it. Um, but uh, in, in recent decades, it's kind of fallen to the wayside and it's given kind of ground to a lot more space of a different theological system all about the end of the world. Uh, and, and so I want to talk about kind of, again, this kind of outlier idea that I hold uh, how it probably shapes a lot of what I do. It certainly shapes probably some of my dip- deepest convictions on what the gospel is all about, that the gospel is a much bigger and broader category than just souls getting saved, um, which is why I, I so often um, probably have an aversion to just putting it in that cul-de-sac and calling it done. Um, so, you know, kind of talking about all of that. And then I'll talk about, again, I think some of the super toxic offshoots of this theological belief system, probably the ones that I would say are the most destructive to uh, Christianity and our culture right now. It's not the only ones, but actually, no, I think it is the most destructive to Christianity and our culture. And those who may not realize they're kind of dipping into the system, the toxic version of it, they're they're doing it without realizing it. So maybe talking about that too. Um, So we're going to go all over the place. I have no clue how long this is going to take, but I hope you find it interesting. I hope you find it a little challenging. Uh, I have no doubt that many are going to scratch their heads and go, eh, I don't know. So I'll try to build my best case in a simplified fashion because it is a deep, well topic. And I kind of get that. So uh, anyway, and it might even be a little bit insider baseball. But if you're somebody that appreciates discussions about, I'm going to put in air quotes for those just listening, in times, let me put it, let me frame myself in the picture here, in times, um, 
air quoting it. Uh, if, if you're somebody into that, this will at least give you a different variation of some of the variations out there. So, uh, enough lead in. You're like, okay, dude, just get to it. You keep leading up, but you're not landing the plane. So, uh, anyway, so this system is called post millennialism. All right. So, um, that's the kind of the buzz term that it uses. And so you have different variations that understand the, um, coming of Christ into the world for his kingdom. So the kingdom starts at the first coming. So when we read the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's when the kingdom starts, somewhere in that space. Like I always think about Luke 17, 10, where Jesus says, hey, if the son of man is among you or I'm among you, uh, then certainly the kingdom of God has come among you. So the idea is just where Christ is, is his kingdom, right? And in that sense, because Christ came at the first coming, he established his kingdom. And so we are people that are aware of the kingdom in the world. We have life in the kingdom in the world. We are are trying to live out the values of the kingdom of the world, of the kingdom in this world, because that's what transforms the world. And so we should see it a little bit like Jesus describes it as leaven inside dough that kind of spreads and grows or a tree that grows or a seed that grows into a big tree uh, or the, the farmer that scatters seed all in his his farm. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom. The kingdom is the world. There's those who have life in the kingdom. And then those who don't realize that they're in the kingdom and thus they don't have life within the kingdom, but everybody's in the kingdom now because the kingdom's in the world now. Like that's at least a firm conviction I have. And I honestly go from the text, it should be everybody's firm conviction. Now it's not everybody's firm conviction. Um, there are those who say, no, the kingdom's only in the future after the second coming. And some will say that that's going to be for a thousand literal years. And others are going to say, well, we don't know what that all means, you know? So there's kind of different systems there. And I'll get into that in a second. Um, but the idea is that the kingdom started in the first coming. And then post-millennialism is saying uh, at the end of this period or this phase of the kingdom, Jesus will come physically on earth once the kingdom has come to be on earth as it is in heaven. So the prayer that we have, right, that they, that everything would be on earth just as it's marrying in heaven. Once it gets to that point in the world, then Jesus physically returns and it's the eternal reign of Christ on earth, new heaven, new earth, all of that. So post-millennialism then has this view of a progressive expansion of the kingdom that touches all spheres of life, and that happens because Christians are taking seriously their faith to live out the values of the kingdom by way of continuing to do all the stuff like in the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemy, do not judge, give, pray, you know, all the stuff that's in there, uh, the, the stuff about, you know, uh, if your hand causes you to sin, your eye causes you to sin, faithfulness in our communications, faithfulness in our promises, that whole listing of things in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you know, same thing in the Sermon on the Plain, um, the doing of that consistently and fearlessly eventually changes lives, which changes regions, which changes societies, which changes the world. That is kind of this view of post-millennialism as rooted in revival. So the version that I ascribe to is called revivalistic post-millennialism, and it's the belief that as people are not simply speaking the gospel, but they are living out the implications of the kingdom consistently, that is the only thing that can change the world to being more like the world that Christ is developing it into. And part of my belief in this 
goes all the way back to the promise made in Genesis. So I'm very much about story. So the big meta narrative of God, we might call it or the big story of God. What's God wanting to do in the big story? And when you read throughout the Old Testament, it's a story of healing, restoration, completeness of the world. It's not a story that says he, he uh, decimates the whole thing toward the end and then just reboots the whole thing. That's not the story you read. And so even Revelation, where people go, well, that's exactly what's being communicated there. Well, one of the things we don't real about, realize about Revelation is it's super saturated with Old Testament, Testament imagery. And so to interpret Revelation outside of the Old Testament imagery takes us in directions I really don't think the author intended us to go down. Uh, that became really popular in the 70s with Hal Lindsey. It's really popular with dispensational theology. I'll probably talk about that in a minute too because that's probably the version most of you listening probably hold to because you were raised around it or you heard a lot about it from the Left Behind series or, again, just the popularization of kind of the – the um tribulation, the seven years of tribulation and the rapture and all of that, like that theological system is super young to Christianity overall, but very popularized in most of our lifetimes and certainly here in the United States and in the UK and some other places. So we're just more familiar with that. This version I'm given, we're less familiar with because it was popular in the 17 and 1800s for sure. Not so popular today. Anyway, that's a side note, just historically in the timeline, right? So anyway, uh, from this, then, what is believed is that the world gets better and better and better uh, because what God's plan was since Abraham was to bless the nations. So the nations are at odds, like in, in Genesis 10 and 11, that's the whole Tower of, of Babel where um, – Everybody's unified, and then there's this great divide that happens, and that kind of is the establishment of the nations, and the nations are not on the same page together anymore. And so God then comes to Abraham and says, but I'm going to restore that in my way, in my timeline, in my style, as opposed to the unity that they were finding apart from me. Now I'm going to create unity amidst them through you, Abraham. So that's the process to unify and bless the nations. And so that's the promises in, that you see in Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three, and that God is going to bring an offspring through Abraham to accomplish that task. And so the rest of the story of the Old Testament is God raising up a nation to reach the nations. That's the heart. And when you get into the latter section of the Old Testament, you run into what's called the book of the 12. We call it the minor prophets, but the Hebrew people in the Hebrew Testament, it's just one piece of literature called the book of the 12, the book singular of the 12, plural. Uh, but you look at the minor prophets or the book of the 12, you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the bigger chunks of prophetic literature, and you see this time where the world is at peace, the world is at one, um, the the lion lays down with the lamb, the child plays with the serpent and isn't bitten. I mean, there's all these weird kind of things. The 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 healing of a great river that brings healing to all of the world. Uh, there's this kind of effect of just harmony and peace there within. And that that is the trajectory. God's like, through Abraham, I'm going to use a nation to bless the nations. And in the end, the world is healed through this process. But it's an elongated process that the developmental process is what you see unfolding. And so when we get to the New Testament, then Jesus becomes what Israel failed to do. So he is still kind of like the Israel type, but he's also God. So God comes into the world. He takes on the Israel type. And he does what Israel fails to do. He's going to reach the nations. And so he establishes this church. That is the mechanism that he continues the process and the project of restoration to bless all the nations. And so the job of the church then is to live out the values of the kingdom in the name of Jesus, which is the essence of the gospel, not just saving souls, but bringing transformation to the world that continues this migration, this growth toward completeness to where the kingdom is on 
earth as it is in heaven. So picture it like a slope that just keeps sloping up. Now, if you got really close in on that slope, it's going to look a lot more like the stock market over a 100-year cycle. It's going to be having peaks and valleys, ups and downs. But when you pull back, you see that there is this upward trajectory. And that trajectory has been unfolding, not for 2,000 years, but honestly, for just over about 4,500 years. It's a long, like long progression slope since Abraham right? I mean, you could even go further back. You could say since Noah, if you wanted to, in the story, you could go all the way back to Adam and Eve or, or what lost the process. And so everything's been a rebuild since then to kind of get back to that. But that's where it's going, which is why the story starts in a garden with a tree and it ends with a city with a series of the same tree. And there's rivers in Eden, but now there's a single river in the city of God. And, and that's the bookends of the story, what God is moving us to, from a garden to a city, one tree to many trees, all that are rooted in life, right? That's kind of your big idea story. And we're in the middle of a story, but it's still uptrending. And that's maybe the thing I want to talk about then, that post-millennialism sees that it's an uptrending story and our activity in the world matters to the uptrend of that story in any given generation. So this is where, again, I use the stock market analogy of some generations it drops, some generations it spikes, some generations it plateaus or barely is up or barely down, or in some parts of the world it's really up, in other parts of the world it's really down. But the overall trend is God's making a promise fulfilled in the world that he's taking it from kind of infancy to maturity. He's taking it from... from you know, like an original successful model that failed. And so he's going to undo the failure through the process of time, through his people, through multiple generations, decades, millennia, you name it. We may only be halfway into this. We may go another five, six thousand years, 10,000 years. I don't know. But he's up sloping it slowly and surely to this completion point where finally the kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven. And then that's when Jesus returns. Okay, so that's postmillennialism kind of at its core. Um, the other systems, uh, so like like dispensational premillennialism, just real quick, uh, says, hey, uh, you know what? The world just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, the end times have been unfolding for since the time of Christ, but it's finally going to get to a really compressed point. Uh, there's going to be now, depending on which view you hold, there's going to be a rapture and then seven years of tribulation, or there's going to be seven years of tribulation and halfway through a rapture, or there's going to be seven years of tribulation at the end of that a rapture. There's different rapture positions, but then after that seven years of tribulation, then Jesus comes, sets up a thousand year kingdom. But at the end of that thousand year kingdom, there's another rebellion. Satan's unleashed, does all this damage. Christ just ends all of that. And then he sets up the new heaven and new earth. That's premillennial dispensationalism of which most people, like I said today, kind of probably hold to some variation of that. And then there's a version called amillennial theology, which means no millennium. And this is kind of closer to the post-millennial view. And this one's more popular than post-millennialism, less popular than dispensational premillennialism. Um, but this version says, hey, the kingdom started at the first coming of Jesus, but it's only spiritual. It's not really in this world. It's a spiritual world. Thus, there's no millennium. That's what all millennial means, no millennium. But rather, the kingdom is a spiritual plane. People who are in Christ, who are Christians, they're a part of that spiritual kingdom that's more like in heaven than it ever will be on earth. Uh, but then eventually, one day Jesus comes and starts the, the new heaven and new earth. There's no thousand years to come in the future. We're just living in a non-millennium millennium, no physical millennium on this earth, spiritual millennium that goes on for who knows how long. It's been 2,000 years. It may go on for another five minutes or 5,000 years. We don't know, but it's not a literal thousand years in that system. 
right? Just as much as in the post-millennial system, it's not a literal thousand years. Just Jesus comes after this period of kingdom on earth when the kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven. There is one last version really quick because, hey, I got you here. And if you haven't tuned out already, at least to get you a little bit down the road of education, there is classic premillennialism and then dispensational premillennialism. So the, 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 uh, dispensational version I just shared with you. It's the one that anytime you see a seven years of tribulation and a rapture, that's how you know you're looking at dispensational premillennialism. Classic premillennialism doesn't have a rapture in it, doesn't necessarily have truly a seven years of tribulation. It just says at the end of this period, there's time of tribulation, but the Christians are in it, they go through it, and then only at the end of that final travail does Jesus return uh, and uh, from that sets up a thousand-year kingdom on earth. And at the end of that thousand-year kingdom, yes, there is a revolt in their system too, and then Jesus squashes it and then sets up the new heaven and new earth and that kind of thing. So kind of the pre-millennial views, whether it be classic or dispensational, have a literal thousand years comes after Jesus has his second coming, right? Kind of how we get there, a little different between the two systems, but fundamentally that's what they are. We're amillennial, no literal millennium, and it's not on earth. And then post-millennial, no, the the millennium is millennial kingdom is not a literal thousand years, but it is very much on earth and it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until finally earth and heaven touch Jesus returns at that point. All right. Hopefully I haven't lost you at this point. Cause again, I know that's just like doing some tidying up homework on some of this, but it gives you a sense of kind of the different systems. And then from that I land in that basically the world is getting better and that's what throws everybody off and they're like the world is not getting better look around have you seen how bad it is i'm like right you have an indoor toilet you have indoor plumbing you have medications for every single conceivable problem we actually when we go to war have rules now for war we actually after we maybe bomb a region drop food supplies health care needs whatever else the, the, we don't have slaves anymore. We don't treat women as property in most parts of the world anymore. Like, there's so many things. We can fly through the sky to places in ways we never used to be able to before. We have much more a, a sense of care about mental health and mental stability. And, I mean, there are so many things that we've gotten so much better on in the world than we ever have before. We've got it made. And I know you go, but no, are you reading the news? I'm like, you can read the news. That shows things have gotten better. Most people couldn't read till relatively recently in, in global history. And then you got all of these things that are there to be like the the kind of the pesky press to call out injustice, to call out uh, when officials and politicians and uh, leaders and policing entities and you name it are doing unjust things. They can get filmed now, caught for it, held accountable for it. Like, man, in human history, that wasn't the case. You know, everything was just kind of capricious. Kings did whatever they wanted to do and rulers before them, right? So like when you look at the last several thousand years, we are living at the apex the apex of the world has gotten to be a better place, right? And I know any given generation goes, no, it's the worst it could ever be. Solomon talks about that in Ecclesiastes. Every generation's like, oh, back in my day, it was way better, but today it's so terrible, you know? And I'm like, no, when you look around, right? When you just think about your life for just a minute, it's not so rough. Like, you don't worry about tomorrow whether you're going to have your precious coffee. You just assume your coffee's going to be there. And it comes from South America, and it gets shipped here, and it's the craziest thing. Like, we can move goods and services all over the world. You look at the last 60 years just in the world, even as it is, where you have... 
Uh, I remember when I was a kid, there was constantly pushes for we need to get rice to this place and we need to try to get food to that place because there was literally starvation around the world. Do you know what's gone away? Starvation around the world. We have figured out how to harness science to make crops stronger and better and more resilient and to grow in more arid regions. And we have created supply chains unlike anything the world has ever seen. Like, there's so many things, right? You know, even democracy. Like, if, if we look at democracy kind of started in these little enclaves of France and then the United States. And, you know, we were first the great experiment. And now there's like over a hundred countries that are democratic. Like, just this idea of how societies form and make decisions is transformative in ways we never could have imagined. And when the founding fathers, who, by the way, like I said, many of them in in the Christian space would have held to this view, that's what motivated them to some of the things that they did. They're like, the world is getting better. How can we contribute to this betterment of the world? Here's some of the ideas to do that. And they were right. It has worked as it spread around the world. It's an effective tool. It's incomplete. It's imperfect, but it's an effective tool, right? So you can tell I get a little excited about this. But even when they started it, right, we're like, that's right, everybody, the, the common man has the freedom to vote. That was the only person that did. And it wasn't just the common man. It was the property-owning common man that had the... Not a black man, only a white man who is, you know... Like, but since then, now it's like every shade, different genders, you know, like... You can vote. You know, like there, there's been this progression that's identified the humanness of the black man, the humanness of the black woman, the humanness of the white woman, like things that weren't the case even when the founders founded this country, right? So there's so many ways in which the world has gotten better. Now, does that mean it's perfect? No. I still think there's a lot of runway ahead of us. I still think there's a slope that we must go up. But when we just honestly meditate for a minute, we will realize that in medicine, science, ethics, uh, human treatment, human trafficking, uh, you know, just technology, all these advancements have made the world a better place than it was. It doesn't mean the world's perfect. Yes, I get what the beauty of the internet that can educate a child in Mumbai also can traffic child porn, right? Like I go, there are still problems. The fact that children were exploited is not new. Right, the methodologies or the technologies, rather, to do that are new. But children have always been exploited. But think about how many programs we have in place now to try to prevent child exploitation. You go back 500 years, nobody cared. You go back 2,000 years, Rome would protect that for citizens. You want to have your little boy, slave, child, sex toy thing? No problem. That's completely defended and protected by the government. Today, the government will hunt you down and imprison you for that stuff, right? So this is where, again, I go, there's so many things that have changed. And I believe in that, that is not, oh, we got lucky. I believe in that, that that is how the kingdom comes to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Because there's things that God cares about, things that Jesus reinforces that are rooted in a lot of these things. Things of equity, things of justice, things of watching out for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. Like the, the, the values, especially of justice that God has in the Old Testament are huge. Like you cannot overstate it enough that the word righteousness and justice are intertwined. They're the same word in Hebrew. And God is constantly pushing that, which just being open for a minute so grieves me when I do hear Christians in our culture be so reactive about this concept of social justice that they go, oh, social justice, wokeness, watch out. And I'm like, be careful with that because yes, there are abuses, there are misuses. It's sometimes used as just a gotcha tool. I get all of that. But as soon as we go, oh, I just disregard anything that asks the question of, is this justice or not? If we just disregard it, God's like, whoa. 
That's a massive tool that I am using to make the world better. It's justice. If we would have blown off justice for women and justice for the African-American population and we blew off justice for the the immigrant and we blew off justice for the, the poor and weak in our world, like you think about how many times corporations throughout you know the last couple hundred years just exploited kids, exploited women, exploited the poor. Poor. That still happens today. I mean, there's even a discussion right now about if if the Supreme Court is going to step in and kind of prevent the federal government from being able to use kind of different tools to deal with like the EPA and things like that. You know, how much can you regulate corporations? How much can you regulate environment? And they the government may lose some of that. And and, and some people are like, awesome, that's great. The government we don't want them in that kind of regulation stuff. I'm like. But that means we trust corporations to clean up the environment. We trust corporations to not dump stuff in the water. We trust trust corporations to be honest with their uh, financial accounting practices. It was like the banks. You know, it's like, do we trust banks then? Like, let's not regulate the banks. We trust the banks with money, you know? And it's like, we no, we don't. So, you know, part of these mechanisms are designed to try to, in a clumsy sort of way, bring justice in the world. And and I'm not advocating for all of them. I'm not defending all of them. That's not my point. But my point is to say that just even that concept of justice is a huge driver in God's economy of bringing flourishing to the world, right? Because it's about kind of the peacemaking side. It's about realizing that you got to look out for those who have power against them and you need to step in as power for them if you have the power to do that. Like that's a major theme of Proverbs. That's a major problem in Ecclesiastes and it's a major thing that God wants to see accomplished. And so we've seen that over the course of human history and we've accelerated in recent generations, right? Where that's gotten even better, you know, it would have been like World War II, once the dust settled, there wouldn't have been like, hey, we want to have trials to bring Nazi war criminals to justice. And it just went, it's done. We beat you. Now we imprison you, enslave you. And that's it. Like, it's just it, moving on. Like, there would have been no, like, let's go back and reflect on some of this. What can we learn from this? How can we keep cleaning up the mess? That's an impressive thing, even, that in the end of war, we reflect on our own human condition and our own frailty, and we want to make sure we don't duplicate the same thing, right? That's impressive. Now, I know I'm going off on this, but it's it's to say that I know it's so easy for us to go, but no, Matt, look, uh, look how bad the world is right now. And I'm like, right, I just don't see that it's so, I don't see that it's worse today than it was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago. You know, I mean, even just think about how crazy it is, the the simple little sicknesses that we get today that we can knock down with an antibiotic that would have killed great, great grandpa Fred, right? Just would have killed him for nothing. A, a, an abscess tooth, appendicitis, you know, um, you know, just getting a cut that turns into an infection. My wife, right, has lupus. My wife would be dead already if she lived 100 years ago, you know, like, and now she can take a pill every day. And it wards this off, you know, and I mean, it's just incredible. How many people would, would, would die of cancer from simple cancers that now we can totally deal with? I mean, it's pretty incredible. So, and because Jesus is all about, hey, man, I want you, I made you to be a creator, to go create as I create. Man, we're creating all of these things. And I do believe it's in his image that we do that. Even for those who don't believe, who are atheist, agnostic, faith of another variation, whatever it is, it's still God working in the world. That's the thing we sometimes forget is that God made this promise. He's carrying his kingdom onto completion. He's bringing a newness to all things. That's Jesus's promise at the very end of the book, the last chapter of Revelation. Behold, I make all things new, right? And whether that's in an instant or that's over a processing period of time, 
We can all debate that. I think it's over a processing period of time done through God's image bearers in the world as he's bringing his kingdom to bear in the world, growing like a seed into a tree, growing like leaven in the lump, growing like a farmer who throws out the seed and the, the, the wheat and the tares rise up together. And then what's he do at the end of the age? He removes the tares and leaves the wheat where? In his in his kingdom, in the world, right? Uh, we never leave in that sense as, 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 a, as a population of God's people. So this even idea of like taken out in the rapture kind of thing, I'm not sure that's what Paul was getting at, right? When he deals with that in Thessalonians, different topic, different day, but don't think that's what he's dealing with, right? Um, gathered to him, I think it's gather, gathered in a different way. So um, anyway, all of that to say, that is the model in the system that drives my activities. And, and and then maybe this is where I can make it a little bit more practicalized because I think we actually make a difference for the betterment of the world, not just in the souls of people, but in the soul of the, of the world itself. Um, it reminds me in Genesis one, that God made the world very good and he's not giving up on it, right? Uh, he still wants to rescue the world in every facet, the planet that is the world, the inhabited or the, the habitat of the world uh, that he has made for our flourishing. Uh, the, the fact that he made us to be networked as a species to look out for the other species of this planet, right? We were meant to be caretakers and, 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 and kind of stewards of the environment. We were not here to, to rape it, destroy it, to just kind of take advantage of it, but rather to be in union with it in such a way that we benefited it and it benefited us. And so even when God like tells the man and the woman, uh, be fruitful, multiply, go out, subdue, have dominion, all of those kinds of things. He wasn't like, Hey, just rip it up from the roots and turn it into whatever you want. It was like cultivate. Like you, you can bring greater order to this. When God made the world on that final day, he wasn't like, don't touch it. It's exactly as I want it. No, the very thing he does is like, okay, we've gotten it to this point. Now you all, man and woman, you go and do more with this. You take it to new places, right? That, that's kind of that idea from a garden to a city kind of imagery. Like we're going places. So go do that. And that's still true. We're going places. Even in our fallenness, we're going places. God wants us to go places. God wants to move us from a garden to a city. And we get to collaborate with that and at all those different levels, which is why we should be creative, why we should be inventive, why we should be innovative, and also why we should be bringing that human part of uh, peacemaking, kindness, love, joy, peace, uh, investing uh, to our world, right? Like that also plays into the equation, which is why then when I say the gospel for me is much bigger, it is, hey, to see somebody reconnected to God is not like the be all end all. Like I go like, no, to see somebody reconnected to God is then reconnected to God's vision for the world. And then they have this role to play to recultivate, to uh, reinvest, to see the kingdom move forward a little bit more in the world, both relationally and technologically and socially, like all of that is there. And so you bring your skill set to bear on kind of another Lego being laid into the kingdom in the world, right? And I think that's much more exciting to me. Like I get pumped up about that because then suddenly it's everything I do contributes to the kingdom, not just, hey, if I reach a person and they believe in Jesus, I've done my kingdom thing. Uh, or if I'm a good person, I'm being moral before God so I can be held in, in right regard in the midst of God one day. And that's all that matters is like, no, what we do every day matters to the advancement of God bettering this planet, which is his agenda, which was the agenda from the beginning and remains the agenda today. 
and instead of us seeing these advancements as problems, we should see these as as kind of like the the breath and echo of God in the world. It's like his common grace, we call it in theology, in the world where, you know, we are, um, uh, you know, like seeing, oh, God just worked in that that researcher over there to come up with this solution to deal with this diabetic problem and alleviate those people's condition by just a fraction or by maybe a lot, depending on what it is. What a beautiful thing. How awesome is that, right? It's stuff like that where you go like, that's what we get to see working because here's the thing you see throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. God massively works through people that don't give a rip about him, right? Like it's pretty impressive. In fact, some of the biggest heavy lifting of God, like when you read in the Old Testament, were dudes that had no relationship to God. But God's like, you know what? This is how I roll, man. I get my stuff done through everybody. You like me, dislike me. I get my stuff done through you. Like God got his job done through Pilate. He did. God got his job done through Judas. He did. Like, it's all in there. Like, you know, like, like God is a part of the process in this, right? And so this is what I think is so cool, man. He's like the ultimate, like, trying to think of a good, I want to say like mastermind, puppeteer, but that just sounds like too disrespectful to what I think he's doing. I, I, I think it's like he's the great orchestrator, right? You know, and it's like the human condition and the human race is the orchestra and he can bring out of all of them exactly a role to play in the process, whether they like him as the conductor or not. Like he's just good at this, you know, or like a good football coach, you might have a player that doesn't like him, but he gets that player to play in their position to the best of their ability, even though they don't like the coach. Like that's, that seems to be what God does in this whole thing. And see, that excites me because then I don't feel like every day I'm just trying to invest into a sinking ship. He's going to burn to the ground in the end. Like like that to me, I go, then why bother? Like, that's the thing. It's like, if the world is just going to get worse, then why bother investing, right? You go, well, to save souls. To what end? Great. So they know God and everything that God said was good, he still destroys in the end. That just doesn't excite me as much, right? And, and so... By this, though, I go, wow, suddenly the gospel is multifaceted. The good news is for the whole world. The good news isn't just for the souls of individuals, of which are a minority even in the world. But it's for the sake of the world. It's taking the world to a place. And this is exactly what Jesus said he was going to do anyway, right? So God sends his son to the world. Why? To condemn the world? No. It says in John 3, 16, 17, not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. See, for us in postmillennialism, we think John 3, 16 and 17 isn't a wish that goes unfulfilled. It's a promise that actually is fulfilled. God so loved the world he gave so that the world would be saved, right? He's saving the world. You know, this is even in Colossians chapter one, you know, where it's like he's bringing all this reconciliation in heaven and on earth through the blood of the cross. Like he's reconciling all things to himself. He's making all things new. He's growing it from the seed to the tree, from the little bit of leaven to the giant lump. You know, like all of that is exactly what he's doing. And that is exciting to me. Now, with that, there is a good version and a bad version. The good version at least for me, like the way I put everything. I sound like now the Apostle John in his extremism of First John. There's a good and a bad. There's a godly and an evil. No, I don't mean it like that, but close. Um, so in postmillennialism, there's these two branches. They might as well be two completely opposite directions. One is the revivalistic version that I'm espousing, which is it's not through force, through trauma, through control, through law, like as far as like trying to get everybody to conform to my Christian version that you change the world, but rather it's through living out the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, definition of love, fruit of the Spirit, blah, 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 Madigan. Um, it's living out those things and um, 
figuring out every day how you can be Jesus to the world around you, right? That motivates me heavily. Um, I even shared this this last week. You know, one of the, probably the, the the primary motive I have right now is that everybody I interact with, I want them to go. That guy is really encouraging to be around. Like that guy is inspiring to be around. Or, and I don't mean like because I'm like, hey, you can be pumped up too. But they, they go, that guy, how how can a person be that consistently joyful and nice? Like that's motivation A. So how can somebody be that joyful and nice? I, I, that is my primary lens every day. Um, and then the other is anybody that I know does not like me, how can I try to befriend them? Particularly people that really probably think I'm an enemy of theirs. How can I try to heal that and make an enemy a friend? So those are the two big things that motivate me every single day now. That's it. Purely it. Um, because I, 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 I honestly go like, nobody's going to be interested in my Jesus if they think I'm a jerk. Nobody's going to be interested in my Jesus if they think I'm just judgmental, you know? So I'm like, the only way people are going to be sort of interested. And it's funny, man, like even now kind of doing this stuff at the gym or whatever else, people are super like, what is with this guy? Like this guy, he's a pastor, but he's like super normal person, A, and B, he does seem pretty happy. Like what's the deal with him? And so I get people asking me like pretty regularly about these things now, right? Which I think is really cool because I go, that's like hooks in the water, man. That's like putting, you know, and, and I don't want it to be inauthentic. I mean, my prayer every day is like, God, I want to really dwell in joy. I want to dwell, which if anybody knows me six, seven years ago, we did a series in Philippians for this very reason, right? A pessimist guide to joy is what it was called because I struggle with joy. And so a little bit of this was like, okay, if I'm going to struggle with joy, and I think joy is the only way that anybody's going to really be interested in God outside of a trauma in their life that makes them go, maybe I need God. But because I think people just think that Christians are all sucking down like lemon heads and have a sour look and, you know, all want to control everybody else's lives. We have a bad reputation, right? But but I'm like, I, I, I think people, if they see joy, if they see enthusiasm, if they see encouragement and inspiration. They may be interested in this Jesus guy that I follow, right? So that's kind of it. And then with the enemy thing, I go, man, if I can love an enemy, then I can love a neighbor and I can certainly love a Christian. I can love God, right? If I can't love my enemies, then I'm not really going to be able to love God like he wants me to because he calls me to love enemies. So if I love him, I'm going to love enemies. Therefore, this whole idea of loving enemies enemies is a big thing to me. Uh, Also, because it's the hardest thing to do. So, you know, the fact that I can, uh, I don't know, read my Bible and pray and feel good about that. Well, that's easy to do love an enemy, that's hard to do. To face every day with joy and encouragement, that's hard to do. There's certain days I don't wake up and I feel joy or want to encourage anybody. And it's on those days it's like, yeah, but God's called you to joy and to encourage people. So I get to do that. God's called you to peacemake. So Matt, go do that. Um, God's called you to disrupt stereotypes, Matt. So you better go out there and disrupt some stereotypes because people see pastors as threats. People see pastors as dangerous. People see pastors as people who have crushed other people's souls for religious ideology. And Matt, can you go change that view? That motivates me, right? But to me, that's a post-millennial thing too. Like, I'm like, okay, this is how we bring restoration and healing to the world. We have to heal reputation. We have to undo damage. We have to ask for forgiveness for the the sins of others. I was just doing that the other day with a gal. She was telling me a story about her parents taking her or her grandparents took her to church, put her in this really pretty dress that was this red dress and she felt so beautiful and is a kind of a kind of a 13, 14 year old kid, you already feel insecure about yourself as a girl. She felt beautiful. She goes to church and one of the leaders at church pulls the grandparents aside and says, her dress is higher in the front than it is in the back. That looks like she's inviting something. You need to take her home so she can change her dress. And this girl has very little good things to say about clergy. Trust me, right? 
And uh, and I thought about that, like just how much damage that did to the psyche of this little girl who thought she was going to church looking beautiful and was turned away because basically it was like she's 13 with her dress in the front higher than the back. She must be a whore. So you need to take her home. And so it's her fault and men can't control themselves. It was just tragic, right? So all of this stuff we have to kind of undo, right? That's my heart. Undo all of this stuff and then present a Jesus to the world that the world goes they can reject him on the terms of how he is, but let's present him as he really is. Cause as he really is, is a shaper of life and joy and completeness and abundance. And if they don't see that, what, what are we sharing with them? Right? So that's really my mission. And so all of this goes back to revivalistic post-millennialism. I think all these little things matter. All these little aggregate pieces are what make the ultimate difference. And we want to embody all of those aggregate pieces to make this difference for Jesus in the world. Right? The other version of postmillennialism is what's called um, dominion theology. And dominion theology says we just need to get in control of the legal structure and we need to make all of the laws, Christian laws, and then once we have all the Christian laws in place, then we can can arrest, we can imprison, we can even execute anybody that doesn't adhere to Christian laws. And so this is Christian nationalism. You're hearing a little bit about that today. I think it's where you're seeing a lot of Christians get on board the political train more thoroughly than they really are on the kingdom train and on the the kind of the political train they want to keep passing laws that basically outlaw what they consider to be immoral or bad behaviors not like murdering a person but like just people's free decisions like no we're going to control more and more people's free decisions we're going to make their free decisions illegal and uh from that then we can just enforce a christian nation through the political structure and and you see a lot of people hot to that right now, and they don't even realize that what it is is being dominion theology-based. They go, no, this is just being bringing morality to bear on culture through the legal and political system. But as they do that, they don't sound loving, joy-filled, peace, patient, kindness. Like, they don't sound fruit of the Spirit as they do this and advocate this. Um, they don't sound like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. They're like, you hit me in the cheek, I'm going to shoot you in the face uh, because I have the right to defend myself against you, kind of thing. You know, and and I get that whole thing. Don't I'm not trying to completely throw defending yourself under the bus here, but the attitude and the idea is like, no, there's all these people that are the enemy, and the only way we're going to fix the enemy is we get control of things politically, and then we outlaw everything our enemies want to do, and therefore we have the ability to feel good about ourselves going to bed at night that we are using laws to control them because, hey, I didn't do it. It wasn't like I went vigilante. I made sure there was laws to get rid of them for me, and that's convenient. And that idea of dominion theology, where it's really more about Old Testament law being brought back in the name of Christ, that to me is super destructive. And there is a good chunk of people out there that right now, whether they fully understand it or not, that's what they're believing or buying into. And there are certainly groups that are very upfront saying, this is our agenda. We're doing this. Uh, this is where we want it to go. There's a little microcosm of it right now, actually in Moscow, Idaho, where you have a, a church that's very Dominion theology based. It's a pretty big church, and they've been pretty open. Like if they can get a hold of city government, it they're gonna they're gonna legalize it through kind of you know, again, kind of Christian laws, this kind of dominion theology, and they would start outlawing certain things in that community as they could, right? And their hope is eventually it goes all the way to the federal level. And at the federal level, you you legislate Christianity through the legal code, right? That's kind of the, their vision for things, you know? And there's a warmth to that by a lot of Christians because they go, well, we were a Christian nation before. We should be a Christian nation again. I'm like, we really weren't a Christian nation before. What we were, if anything, was kind of a Hebrew nation, 
Most of our stuff was born out of the Old Testament, not born out of the New Testament. You don't see Jesus or Christ or kingdom anywhere in our founding documents. You don't see gospel anywhere in our founding documents. You just see a lot of connection to the Old Testament. The Supreme Court doesn't have the the Beatitudes etched in it. It has the Ten Commandments etched in it, right? So we were really more of a Judeo nation, not a Christian nation. Now, there's a lot of Christians in our nation, but oddly enough, when you go back and look at history, there's a lot of other populations of people groups too. And even the Christianity that was back in our nation well, was this more revivalistic post-millennialism anyway, which makes us make us kinder and gentler and more tolerant, which I actually think the founders in some ways were a little bit more more warm to the tolerance uh, than being truly distinctly Christian, right? As a sidebar, different topic, different day, but you get the idea, right? So there's these two variations that are out there, and my heart is to go, I don't want to start legislating Christian doctrine, and I don't want to legislate distinctly Christian morality, what I want to be a part of is going, God has a deeper heart for justice for all. God has a deeper heart for the sojourner who comes from among you outside as much as the 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 person inside. Like he's really clear in Leviticus, you love both. Uh, if you have an outsider that comes in, he's like, take care of them. You do good to them. You put them up for the night, whatever else. You don't figure out like, how can we keep them out and keep them away? You're figuring out how you can raise the standard of the human condition because in doing that, you're loving God whose image rests in every person who is a bearer of the human condition, right? So that's kind of the essence of it. So when we dislike people groups, we are against people groups. God's like, you're, you're against me too. You realize that, right? As you hate them, you kind of hate me because I'm in them. And if you can't find a way to love me in them, you can't really love me. I mean, that's kind of John's message in 1 John chapter 4. So all of that then kind of matters this whole idea of what are we trying to do? And I go, as an everyday missionary, what we are trying to do is bring betterment to every quadrant of life, to the innovative, to the technological, to the medical, to the social, to the educational, and then to the spiritual, to the individual, to the uh, the kind of mental health, emotional stuff that people are struggling with, that we are a bright spot in dark lives and worlds and spaces, and that we are doing that with the joy of Jesus, with the love of Jesus, with the patience of Jesus, and certainly with the gospel of Jesus, right? All of that comes to bear. But until a person knows we really love them, they're not going to listen to what we have to say, right? And until they know they that we want the best for everybody around us, they're not going to care if it's not like we only want the best for those who are of us. And so this is why this matters, right? This version of, for me, at least revivalistic post-millennialism, it motivates me every single day. So this podcast may have been more like, wow, the meanderings of Matt. I don't even know if I kept up. And now I know why he's a like a whack nut job noodle guy, right? Um, but... I also hope that maybe it makes us go, okay, even if I don't hold to that, I can still kind of do post-millennial stuff, even though I'm not a post-millennialist. In other words, I can make the world a better place every single day, and I can see the good in the world more than I see the bad in the world. And when I see the bad in the world, I don't sit there and gripe about, oh, that's so bad in the world. But I go, how can I bring Jesus' good to bear on that bad, right? And part of that is, you know, do yourself a favor. Watch the local news more than you watch, like, national news. Uh, Listen to real news more than you listen to opinion pieces. Listen to stuff about people's lives more than you listen to stuff about politics. Like, all of that would be really, really helpful because the real problems don't lie in people griping about other people to be paid a lot of money to gripe on X news channel or an X news source. The real problems lie in our neighborhoods and our communities and in our cities that are nearby. And if we want to be truly Jesus oriented and kingdom oriented, find the kingdom needs nearest you and make a difference there, right? 
it's easy to sit back and complain about the Democrats and the Republicans, but you know, there's problems in your neighborhood that you could go deal with, right? And and that's how we make a difference. It's grassroots all the time. That's where real missional life takes place. Now, some may feel led to go run for office and do something at the state or federal level. Great. Then bring Jesus to that. You go do that. You go do that for us. We'll do the stuff around here. You go do that for us. That would be perfect, right? But to just get wrapped up in all this stuff that just kind of makes us toxic, doesn't give us a vision for the future that's positive, makes us critics more than it makes us contributors, that's not helpful. And we want to be helpful because we want to be Jesus-based and Jesus was helpful. And I believe the more that we can get a hold of that, the more we can realize, man, I have a thing to do. And it's moving the ball down the field in a positive way to an ultimate outcome where Jesus is saving the world The more I do that, man, the more I will be an effective and joy-filled everyday missionary.